Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news after thrashing the Gulf Coast of Florida. Hurricane Idalia is now targeting Georgia and South Carolina with heavy rains, dangerously high winds, and serious threats of flash flooding. Idalia is now a Category 1 storm, but it made landfall as an intense Category 3 storm earlier today. The area of Florida's Big Bend took the biggest hit. Big Bend is the part of Florida where the panhandle meets the west coast of the peninsula of Florida. This was the town of Steenhatchee just a few hours ago. So much standing water in the streets that only the roofs of these homes and businesses were visible. Up the road near the town of Perry, Florida, the brutal winds toppled this gas station on it. The winds in the area gusted to 85 miles per hour earlier today. And just take a look at this storm damage in Keaton Beach, also in the Big Bend area, where the eye of Adalia came ashore shortly before 8 this morning. This home has been ripped apart. The entire roof and front of the structure are gone, debris scattered all across the yard. The city of St. Petersburg uh, shared this video with us, saying its teams have rescued more than 75 people so far. More searches are still underway. The National Weather Service also reported water rescues underway in parts of Georgia today. We are, of course, learning about the tragic first deaths from this storm. Uh, Two people who were killed in weather-related traffic accidents in Florida this morning. Adalia right now is barreling towards Savannah, Georgia, with the center of the storm just about 60 miles away. And that's where we find CNN's Ryan Young, literally the calm before the storm. Uh, Ryan, how have conditions changed there as Adalia is inching closer and closer to you? Yeah, Jake, this community has been on high alert. It's a coastal town, so they're aware of how dangerous a hurricane can be. We've been watching the water all day. They're worried about this water rising, so much so that a lot of businesses have been putting a lot of preparation into this. As you can see, this business is closed. They've got the sandbags stacked up here on the outside, and we've been seeing this multiply all across the area. The government has also told people, look, we want you to stay home because we're not sure when the streets are going to flood. But we wanted to show you something, Jake. The preparation has really got really extensive, especially at the businesses that are along the riverfront. That's what you call a water dam. They filled this uh, up with water to make sure when the water hits the banks and comes toward all this commerce, that the water stops here and it's fortified with uh, wood and water in this. So it, it, it moves, but at the same time, the water stops here. To bring you back this direction, Jay, because the conversation has been a lot about the wind. One of the largest bridges in Georgia, the Talmadge Bridge, which is so beautiful here, is just over there. They closed that at 2 o'clock. They wanted to make sure that there were no cars going across that. And just under the Talmadge Bridge, this is really the perfect combination between commerce and uh, the Port Authority, which comes right through here. They've stopped all the ships from moving in. And we've heard all the planes have been canceled and coming to the airport. You put all that together, people are worried about power going out. This has not been a rain event. What this has been so far for us has been a wind event. But at 7 o'clock, that could change, and that's what they're concerned about. Low-lying area, lots of wind, lots of water. It could all end up being pretty bad, especially with the images that we've seen down south. So far, though, so good, Jake. And, Ryan, obviously this is a coastal community. They've seen storms before, serious storms. Yeah. What are you hearing Absolutely. from people who live there? 
Yeah, Jake, I actually worked here uh, probably about 20 years ago, and I've talked to a few people in the community. They tell me they're really watching the Savannah River. Last night, this river here was pretty high. Um, there are some people who are expecting if the water keeps coming, that this water could come up on the riverfront. But it's the other areas throughout town that always sort of flood during heavy rain events. They've seen the rain in Florida. They've been watching the images. They're concerned about that with the combination of the wet ground here having large old trees falling over because of the damp ground, the extra water, and the heavy wind. And then when you add the power outages, you can understand how this could multiply pretty quickly. They talked about a curfew at one point, but it sounds like they're pulling back from that as the conditions haven't gotten worse. But again, we're talking about 7 o'clock tonight where this really could get kicked up here with heavier winds coming through. We've experienced some gusts above 50 so far, but the sustained wind of above 70 is something that people are concerned about. We have seen people also pull some furniture off these balconies to make sure that that doesn't become a projectile and fly into the street. One last thing I want to throw at you. This was a holiday weekend, so people were packing into the city. We've seen a lot of foreigners from out of the uh, state and out of the country come here. They're trapped here now, so they have to get through this uh, hurricane preparation just like the rest of us. Jake? All right, Ryan Young, thanks so much. Let's get an update now on the future of Hurricane Adalia. So many people in Savannah wondering about that. CNN's Chad Myers is in the uh, CNN Weather Center right now. Chad, what is the latest forecast? Well, it's hard for Savannah for me to even find the eye itself. The center is really breaking up, and that's great news because the storm has been over land for so long. Hurricane Center keeping that 75-mile-per-hour moniker there, but I think we're probably really losing some of that. There will be 75-mile-per-hour gusts on some of these land-falling big storms, some of these outer bands. Another thing going on here, as the storm rolls up the coast, there will be beach erosion all the way from the low country of South Carolina, possibly even toward Tybee Island as far south there. And that's not far from where Ryan is. And then all the way up even in toward North Carolina as those waves come on shore. But another thing with those waves coming on shore will be the potential for tornadoes. There's the center, I guess. It's getting really big and we're not seeing an eye really anymore. Kind of just a surrounded by radar, surrounded by rain. Most of the rain is to the west now of Savannah. But as it gets a little bit closer here, I think probably Ryan will see some gusts of 50 again. There's the heavy rainfall back out to the west. Some spots over eight inches of rain already on the ground ground. Almost a half a million people now without power. It's going to take a long time for this to all get back up in the air again. I-10 still closed. Debris all over it at this point. Travel across northern Florida, southern Georgia, not recommended. And then obviously all of the rainfall still to come. Not only low country, but up toward Piedmont. And when that happens, that water has to run back down. You start to get some topography and all of a sudden you run the risk of flash flooding. Will this tornado threat continue all night? Nah, yes, but in different locations. Um, so right now, the, the tornado, look, we actually had a couple tornadoes here, not that far from Charleston, not on the ground that we know of, but warnings. But every time you see one of these bigger cells come on shore, there could be some water spouts with it. Then when you get a little bit of friction from the land, it can also spin on land and make a tornado. So yes, that threat is still there. But as the storm now moving almost 25 miles per hour transits all the way up, then this band of rain will eventually be here and then there and then there. And so yes, that tornado threat will move from the south to the north as the day goes on. And then farther to the south, that tornado threat completely goes away. All right, Chad Myers, thanks so much. We'll check back with you. This afternoon, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis updated hurricane relief efforts in his state, where he also announced reports of people looting 
in the hard-hit town of Steenhatchee, Governor DeSantis warned there would be consequences for anyone caught breaking the law. Let's get an update on storm recovery now. I want to bring in Kevin Guthrie. He's the director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management. And Kevin, what are your biggest concerns right now? Our biggest concern right now leading into the evening hours is going to be individuals that do not have power, uh, making sure that uh, if they need, um, you know, they need power, they need to try to get to a shelter. Uh, We still have shelters open across the state of Florida. So, again, if you're sitting in a situation because we have had quite a bit of sunshine here this afternoon, if things are starting to heat up and you're uh, suffering some heat stress and whatnot, you're probably going to want to get to a shelter for tonight and until we can get the rest of the power restored. We're down to about 250,000 accounts without power, and we're continuing to restore those, and we're doing those very, very quickly. So your search and rescue teams, I'm told, are out doing their first searches, but you warned the process could take longer than normal. Why is that? Yeah, this topography in North Florida, the Big Bend area, is completely different than uh, Fort Myers. Um, You know, last year we had about 10 urban search and rescue teams, about five of those federal uh, type one search and rescue teams that were there. But it was urban. It was block to block. We were able to clear lots of houses very quickly. Up here in the Big Bend area and Tallahassee area, um, you may go five mile down a five mile road and hit two or three houses. Uh, large large uh, plots of land, large areas to, to cover and search. So it just takes a long time to do that, especially if we have uh, trees down on the roadway, power lines down. We have to push through, cut through all of that. So it, it does take quite a bit of time to get that done. The head of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Deanne Criswell, is heading down to visit Florida. What do you need most from the federal government right now? Well, we, we have a really good relationship with FEMA. Uh, myself and Deanne have talked quite a bit. Um, what we'll probably be talking about right now is, you know, the, the issues uh, around the, uh, the disaster relief fund. How is that going to impact this particular disaster? Um, what, are, what are the projections? What are we looking at as far as that goes? because that's going to be first and foremost on a lot of people's minds here. Second thing that we'll be talking about uh, and we'll, we'll work through is, uh, you know, what is, is there any uh, negotiation on cost share? I know that that is ultimately a presidential decision and uh, we'll, you know, we'll obviously draft up our paperwork. Uh, the third thing is, you know, we'll start to talk about right sizing uh, the response resources here and making sure that we, you know, anybody that we can break away, we'll go ahead and break away. And then fourth, We'll talk about the actual recovery centers that are going to be coming into the area. Uh, how many disaster recovery centers are we going to need uh, realistically? What's the best methodology? Do we use a mobile format or do we use some fixed large site? So those are all the things that we'll be talking about when she gets here. She's due to land here about 6.30 p.m. Uh, local time. All right, Kevin Guthrie, thank you so much, and best of luck with your job there. Florida may be clear of Idalia's heavy winds, at least as of now, but the high water and damage is why it's spread. We're going to have more updates up and down the Florida coast coming up. But first, if you want to help victims of Hurricane Idalia, you can head to CNN.com slash impact for ways to donate. You can also text 707070. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. And right now, Hurricane Idalia is making its way through southeastern Georgia with about 75 mile per hour winds. The storm touched down in Florida earlier this morning, devastating Florida's island cities such as Cedar Key. The fire department there is sharing these photos of the storm surge, submerging homes and cars. 
Some trees left splintered along any area not underwater. CNN viewer Michael Bobbitt captured the storm surge on the island. He tells CNN he stayed behind to help those living in low-lying areas, uh, helping them get to safety. But because Cedar Key is connected to mainland Florida by a series of bridges, he fears they may be trapped for some time. The storm surge is, has overwhelmed our downtown, our dock street, our boat ramps, uh, the, the bridges on the way into town. Um, it, it's going to be a while before anyone will be able to get on or off the island. We're effectively cut off from the world now. Let's bring in Lieutenant Scott Tummond with the Levy County Sheriff's Office that's south of Gainesville, Florida, covering the Cedar Key area. You just heard from one of your residents who says at some point all of the bridges appeared to be completely underwater. What is the current status of those bridges and how soon will your responders be able to get to those people on the island? Well, currently we're on the uh, downside of the high tide cycle, so the water's starting to recede. Uh, As soon as the winds drop below uh, the critical levels, we had teams on the island checking those that uh, decided to hunker down and weather out the storm there. Uh, We very quickly went through our uh, recovery and rescue operations check the folks at Cedar Key and our other coastal community of Yankee Town. Um, probably within, I would say, two hours, we had contact with those people and ensured their safety. We're very, very fortunate. We only have one minor injury, and that was due to a fall and zero loss of life. At least 75 people have been rescued so far. What are you seeing on the ground? What challenges are first responders facing as they try to get to people to save them? Uh, as any other community like ours, uh, the challenge is going to be getting around the downed trees. Uh, we have uh, a full complement of deputy sheriffs out there with chainsaws, uh, plus our other county infrastructure here. And on top of that, a, 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 a huge uh, populace of National Guardsmen here helping us. Uh, can't say enough to Governor DeSantis for throwing all the resources that he possibly had available to us as we weathered the storm. Uh, we're now kind of in a recovery mode. I want to urge our citizens that want to try to re-enter these uh, flooded, affected communities, give it a little bit of time, let the water get out of there. That'll make it safer for you. Our community of Cedar Key, they have a well-rehearsed re-entry plan. Uh, If you try to get down to Cedar Key just to take a look, you're going to be denied access. So um, be safe when you're out there trying to get to your affected homes and, and just give it a little bit of time. Yeah, no time for sightseeing, for sure. Uh, Right now, there are more than 13,000 power outages across Levy County. How soon do you think power will be able to be restored? Is there any sort of viable timeline? Uh, The timeline, I'm not sure of, but I can tell you in past events like this, our local power cooperatives, they are quick to respond and quick to restore power. Uh, I'd I'd put them against any other power uh, outage that they have anywhere across the U.S. right now. These these guys are top-notch. On top of that, we have... Uh, these contract companies that have come in to aid in uh, resupply of power to these affected communities. I would I would suspect that in, unless it's underwater, uh, we're only looking at just a matter of a few days. I just know how top notch these guys are. What about food resources for families that do not have power? You, you, obviously, you can't keep anything refrigerated if you don't have electricity. Well, when we went to uh, recovery, we immediately started setting up pods in our communities. Uh, I, I can't tell you right now how much of a resource we have out there, but I know it's coming if it's not already on site. So uh, unfortunately, this is not our first time that we've had to practice this drill. And uh, well, no loss of life, that's what I'm most proud of.
Yeah, knock on wood. Let's hope that that remains. Lieutenant uh, Scott Tumman, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. The pictures along Florida's Gulf Coast show high water in town after town. We're going to talk to a mayor trying to manage the emergency situation next. Plus, another concerning moment for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. He appeared to freeze yet again. Did you hear the question, Senator? When taking questions from reporters, we'll show you what happened with the 81-year-old earlier today. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. And we're continuing with our coverage of Hurricane Idalia, the storm surge causing major flooding in parts of Florida, including Tampa and St. Petersburg. CNN's Carlos Suarez is live for us now from Gulfport, which is right next to St. Petersburg. Carlos, how, how severe is the flooding there? Well, Jake, there are parts of this city that are still underwater and other parts that have started to dry out. This part here in Gulfport, as you can see, has started to dry out a bit. Just a few hours ago, you really could not drive up and down uh, just off the coast out here because of some of the strong uh, surge that we saw associated with this storm. Uh, Some of the uh, recovery efforts, the cleanup efforts are well underway here on this same uh, block here. A couple of businesses have already started uh, cleaning up. They're making sure that their businesses might be uh, in shape to uh, hopefully uh, reopen sometime tomorrow. Uh, We talked to the owners of uh, that uh, dog uh, place right there. They they sell uh, some pet supplies as well as uh, this Greek restaurant. And they both told us that they got several inches of rain uh, because of this storm. But considering uh, just how much of a threat this was, they're happy that right now it seems like they're going to be able to go ahead and get things going in the next couple of days. Now, we are being joined right now by the city's mayor, uh, Mayor Henderson, thanks for joining us. How are you, sir? Absolutely. Absolutely. Good to see you. Good, how are you? So we uh, talked earlier today. Uh, tell me how the city is looking elsewhere. Uh, otherwise, uh, wind and rain-wise, we did great. Um, we got way less than we expected, a lot less down limbs. We had about 700 uh, customers without power. Uh, the majority of them have been restored at this point. We expect all of them to be restored by tomorrow. They came out and got on that quickly. The city was well prepared. The one that got us was having the storm surge come rolling in on top of a king tide, which just pushes all that water. Uh, right up on top of us so and you saw it yourself today how quickly it, it uh, receded once the tide went out you were surprised by this right here you were telling me absolutely. because this a couple of hours you couldn't get anywhere near it oh, absolutely yeah this was about three and a half feet deep in water extending up about another block and a half from here so we've got businesses impacted by that we've got city buildings impacted by that and we've got lots of residences impacted by that and just on the other side you told me the flooding is still pretty bad yeah significant um it'll drain out a little slower there uh, where the municipal marina is but a lot of those streets sit a little bit lower down uh, than the sea walls so that tends to retain a little bit longer so once we get a couple more cycles of tides we expect that to to be gone but as you can see these folks have got a lot to clean up in the next couple of days your folks did a good job in in uh taking care of themselves and taking uh, notice of that mandatory evacuation order? Yeah, for the most part, we had some issues this morning. A lot of uh, looky-loos wanting to come down and and, uh, do a little hurricane tourism and see the damage, which is tough because we don't want people exposing themselves to this water. It's got, you know, hydrocarbons from from vehicles in it. It's got bacteria in it, displaced wildlife. You don't know what you're dealing with. It's not not your typical water you want to swim in. So we've been trying to keep folks out of that. And also it, it hinders the it hinders the recovery process and we've got a ton of people down in an evacuation zone. I was here very same spot last year for Hurricane Ian and the folks here took that storm just as serious. Uh, your sense of how things went this time around? Uh, really well. I mean, the majority of our folks do, do good when this comes. Our city staff does a remarkable job. Our emergency responders do a great job. 
Um, we prep the same every time. We anticipate the worst and hope for the best. And most of our residents are, are fantastic. Every once in a while, you get somebody that wants to do something a little bit daring or you know, dumb. And then we have people that have to go out and help them out of those situations. And that's what we discourage because we don't want our, our people to put themselves in jeopardy because someone else didn't, didn't do the right thing. Mayor Henderson, thank you so much for taking time out, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. Jake, as you can see, uh, this part of Pinellas County is still dealing with some of the flooding associated with the storm surge. But the good news is, at least uh, in this part of town where we are right now in Gulfport, uh, the folks out here have started the cleanup effort uh, considering uh, where things were just a few hours ago. Jake? Good news indeed. Uh, Carlos Suarez and Gulfport Mayor Samuel Henderson, thanks to both of you. Joining us now is Rob Heron. He's the public information officer for Hillsborough County fire rescue. Uh, Rob, what have you and your team been dealing with in the Tampa, Florida region over the last 24 hours? You know, there was a pretty good amount of, uh, of storm surge flooding, storm surge related flooding. We had assets mobilized early in the event that were placed throughout the county to uh, initiate uh, quick rapid needs assessments after the storm safely passed for our first responders. And then we followed that up with technical rescue teams if needed. I'm happy to report that Hillsborough County Fire Rescue is uh, is demobilized, um, and uh, you know we've we've cleared all areas of uh, any kind of threat to public safety in the 900 plus square miles that we protect in Hillsborough County. What do you make of the storm surge as you see it? Have you or your colleagues ever seen anything like it before? Well, yeah, but you know it really hasn't been in the Tampa area uh, recently, and and I'm hopeful that. Um, you know, our locals and the folks who, when we say that, you know, a four to six foot storm surge is, is predicted and that the level A uh, evacuation has been ordered, that now they kind of have a benchmark of what that means. And, and, and you know, there was some, some good coverage, some, some good images that showed it. It extended pretty well into a lot of the residential areas of those very zones that we warned against people uh, evacuating. So we're hopeful that they listen to us. We're hopeful that they keep this in mind and that if something threatens our area that is now uh, up to a 10, maybe even 15 foot storm surge, they know what four to six feet does. So now they can kind of conceptualize what 10 to 15 feet will do and, uh, and evacuate when asked to do so. According to data released last year from the U.S. Census Bureau, the, the counties surrounding Tampa Bay are, are driving Florida's population growth. When, when you combine a growing population in an area where the climate crisis is, is making hurricanes more intense, more dangerous, are there enough emergency personnel to, to handle these evolving natural disasters? I'm happy to report, yes, there are. We, 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 uh, we you know, had a callback of a second, uh, uh, a second shift of firefighters. So we had several hundred firefighters standing by at our 46 locations that are scattered throughout Hillsborough County. And yes, there, you know, there's some growing pains when, when you have uh, such a beautiful community as we have and people want to come live here. The good news is, is, you know, we're prepared for that. Uh, we're prepared to respond. Um, I think, you know, having pl played off of this playbook a year ago for Ian and uh, Ian not really uh, hitting us like we thought it would be, um, we're not too far removed from, from doing just what we've done over the last couple of days. All right, Hillsborough County Fire Rescue Spokesman Rob Heron, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Idalia ripped you. up an old tree right in front of the governor's mansion in Florida's capital city of Tallahassee. CNN's Brian Todd has been surveying other hard-hit areas in that part of Florida. We're going to check in with him. Keep it here. You're watching The Lead. 
These photos that you're seeing on your screen right now just in to CNN showing some of the storm damage from Hurricane Adalia. This is in Pasco County, just north of Tampa, Florida. The county's emergency director says approximately 6,000 homes were just filled with water and some were burned. Parts of Pasco County were under a mandatory evacuation order before landfall. Welcome back to The Lead. We're tracking Hurricane Adalia, where it's going and the destruction it has left behind. CNN's Brian Todd's in Tallahassee, the capital of Florida, for us. Uh, Brian, you spoke to a homeowner whose home suffered severe damage. Tell us more. Right, Jake, and this uh, this was a really close call for this family, and I'm going to show you just how close. Uh, this is a house not far from downtown Tallahassee. This can illustrate, what we're about to show you can illustrate not only how close some families came to absolute disaster, but how the dangers that still remain in some of these neighborhoods. But take a look at this first. This is a, a, a large pine tree. Look at just how much the root system just became completely uh, just decimated and it got uprooted. This picked up the entire fence and fell that way and came across the fence and then came across the road. They've done a very good job of clearing the road, by the way, uh, since we were here earlier. But just take a look at the ferocity and the force with which this tree got uprooted. And come on over here, we'll show you just how close it came. If this tree goes maybe a another 45 degree angle to the right, then this family inside uh, is really uh, in some trouble. So we and we did speak to them. Uh, very nice young couple, and they had their daughter in there when this happened. They were very relieved, of course, that it kind of fell the other way. But they were they had a lot of anxious moments at the height of the storm. But we can also show you that uh, people here are not out of danger yet, even though the street here has been cleared. But take a look. A lot of down power lines. That power line down is is down over there. There's another power line down down the street here. Officials are saying, you know, if you if you evacuated and you want to come back to your house, don't really come back if the neighborhood is like this, because down power lines can really be killers. Some of them are still alive, and it's just very, very dangerous to try to navigate. Another thing, and maybe you can hear it behind me, that house back here is running a generator uh, for power. This house back here, I'll just kind of pivot, and Jonathan will take you in here. They're, they're running a generator off their truck over here. That is also the cause of some real danger. Uh, officials. Uh, here in Florida, Louisiana, always tell us that a big cause of death are, are people improperly running their generators, maybe inside their home, and uh, dying of accidents inside the home. But uh, these people seem to have it under control. We can also give you an update, Jake. We just spoke to uh, county officials who say that in Leon County, a little bit more than 38,200 customers are still without power. And officials told me earlier that what they're telling people is don't go out. Let the power crews navigate streets like this. Get out of their way. Even though it's sunny out and the storm has passed, you've got to let these first responders and these power crews do their work to get things back to normal, Jake. Brian Todd, thanks so much. And we just showed you those dramatic images from Pasco County, Florida. Let's get an update on the recovery efforts from Pasco County Administrator Mike Carballa. Uh, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Mike. What's the extent of the damage in Pasco County as some of your emergency personnel are able to get out there uh, with the water beginning to recede? Yeah, thanks. Uh, a, a lot of our damage we experienced is along the coast. So that storm surge really inundated a lot of homes. So we're estimating anywhere between four and 6,000 homes uh, in our county received anywhere from a foot up to five feet of water along our coastline. Uh, I was out there uh, this morning uh, watching a lot of our first responders switch to water rescue operations for folks that unfortunately didn't heed the evacuation orders that we had issued. 
You've lived in Pasco County for nearly two decades. Uh, how does Adalia compare to other storms? I tell you, I, I would say in recent memory, this is this is one of the worst. I mean, we, we went through the, obviously the, the, the hurricanes of 2004 with Florida. The Tampa Bay area in general uh, has, has been fairly lucky. Uh, and again, in, uh, with Ian, we had uh, we had been preparing for a direct hit last year before it, it made that uh, that turn to uh, unfortunately affect our, our friends in, in southwest Florida. Uh, this one here, we we got buzzsawed along along the side and um, Quite honestly, while the effects could have been worse, uh, we we definitely took it on the chin. It uh, uh, I would say that this, uh, as far as comparison, this is probably one of the worst flooding events in terms of water that, that we've probably seen in this county, probably since the no-name storm back in 1993. So you talked about emergency personnel going out and, and rescuing people. Uh, has everyone been rescued and is everyone accounted for? Is Did Pasco County avoid any serious uh, injuries or fatalities? Yeah, as far as I know, we did. Uh, I did receive one report of a fatality in a traffic incident uh, earlier this morning, a single car accident. Uh, not sure the details of that. But yeah, our, our crews were able to work seamlessly uh, with uh, with our sheriff's office and our fire rescue teams. We got everybody out that, that wanted to get out. Uh, folks, folks really got scared seeing the water rise and, and not stop. Um, other folks kind of stayed put, and then as the waters receded, it, receded, it was fine. We've we've finally been able to get our get our shelters clear uh, to to allow things to start to return to normal. But again, I can't underscore the importance of of heating evacuation orders. If you know, I was having a conversation with uh, with our fire chief this afternoon, and uh, it's it's his opinion, and, and I share it that uh, if that storm had turned, just like let's say like an Ian did, a last minute turn, and it hit us directly. You know, we had shelter space available for almost 12,000 of our citizens ready for evacuation in those zones. Um, and maybe we took in a couple of hundred. But if it had turned, we'd be doing a lot of body recovery right now, Jake. And that uh, that's unfortunate. People really need to, to really take these orders seriously and that we only get lucky so many times. Pasco County Administrator Mike Carballa, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate your time. We have much more coming up on the aftermath of Hurricane Adalia. But next, the concerning moment earlier today when Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell froze during another news conference. What is his staff saying about it? Stay with us. Re-election in 2026. And welcome back to the lead. We're staying on top of the latest forecast track of Hurricane Adalia as it barrels through the state of Georgia. We are expecting an update on the storm from the National Hurricane Center in just moments, and we will bring that to you at the top of the hour. Until then, though, let us turn now momentarily to our politics lead. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, had another episode where he froze and was unresponsive during a news conference. It happened today in Covington, Kentucky. What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh, that's right. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yes. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Benny. Yep. Head outside, sir. Come with us. Okay. Okay. 
Somebody else have a question? Please speak up. Um, what efforts is Daniel Cameron going to have to make on the campaign trail to win Kentuckians over in November? Senator Daniel Cameron, uh, do you have a comment on Daniel Cameron? Well, I think the government race is going to be very close. Uh, <clears throat> far and away the best candidate we could have nominated. And uh, our state has become increasingly Republican. In fact, the governor is the only Democrat left in Frankfurt. So I'm optimistic that Daniel will be our next governor of Kentucky. The incident is not dissimilar from what we saw at the Capitol just over a month ago. Senator McConnell, who is 81, was hospitalized in March after suffering a concussion after he fell at a hotel here in Washington, D.C. Since then, CNN has reported on other instances in which McConnell fell that his office uh, had not disclosed. Let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju and Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Manu, first to you. You know, obviously, it, it's it's difficult to watch this. How is Senator McConnell doing now? What is his staff saying? Well, his staff is saying that he is feeling, quote, fine. And they said that he was going to consult with a doctor before he had a second event in Kentucky, a private event later in the day. But there's no word yet on what the doctor told him, what the diagnosis was, or why exactly he froze. They did say that he paused because he was feeling lightheaded at that moment. That's a similar explanation that they gave back in July when he froze for roughly 30 seconds during that news conference. After that incident happened, I had asked McConnell whether or not that was related to the fall that he had in March where he hit his head, suffered a concussion, broke ribs. He didn't say if that was the case, simply said that he is fine. So not much indicating about what the no, no real response yet from his office about the underlying cause of all of this, but undoubtedly causing some concern. He has been some, on the phone, Jake, with some other Republicans, including the number two Republican, John Thune, someone who could potentially succeed McConnell as leader. Thune said, said that in a statement that he that McConnell sounded like his usual self was in good spirits, but didn't provide any other details other than that, Jake. All right. Um, Sanjay, you're a neurosurgeon. I don't want to be rude about it, but that's not somebody who just feels lightheaded. What do you see in in the video of this latest episode? Yeah, I mean, what what we see is someone who essentially is is freezing. And and this is a term that's often used uh, when describing various neurological things. He's obviously freezing. He's not saying anything. His his, uh, face is sort of frozen in that position. But also even his hands. If you look at that video, his hands are sort of really attached to the lectern. His aide comes over, tries to get him to raise his hand. He's sort of really holding on very closely. Um, it, it's very, very tightly, I should say, to that lectern. You know, it's, it, there's a lot of things that can sort of come to mind. The more you know about the various neurological conditions, the longer the list is. But certain things like stroke or things like that are probably less likely. He, get, he walks away and he's moving his arms and his legs as he walks away. Seizure is less likely uh, as well. Um, it's about 30 seconds where he appears to have some component of freezing. I think what really struck me, and, and uh, I think Manu alluded to this, is that you know, his aides don't seem that surprised by this. So we've seen this episode a couple of times, but you get the impression that it happens more often because this is something that they're used to, to dealing with. And if I remember correctly, uh, as Manu has reported, Last time, it's not even clear that he saw a doctor after these episodes, so they, they don't seem like they're that entirely surprising. So while it's 
you know, as you say, hard to watch. It doesn't seem like this is just lightheadedness. It seems to be something that is really ongoing. Someone who has a, a, a Parkinsonian-like condition, for example, whose medications are wearing off or, or something like that, uh, that's something that could sort of explain this behavior. But as I said, Jake, it's, it's a long list of possibilities here. Yeah, and again, I, I don't mean this in a disc discompassionate way at all. Uh, my mom turns 81 literally today. Uh, my dad is 83. Uh, we all see the effects of, of aging, not only on ourselves, I'll exempt you from that, Manu, but, but, uh, but on our parents. Um, but but it's, this is concerning, um, the, the freezing up. Um, what do you make, Sanjay, of, of both McConnell and his aides reported, repeatedly asking reporters to, to speak up? That doesn't seem all that unusual necessarily. Yeah, I mean, look, once you get over the age of 60, and I'm not there yet, um, but one in three people will have hearing loss. If you get to closer to 85, he's 81, but you get closer to 85, one in two people have hearing loss. But, you know, I, again, I think to, to your point, uh, th these questions were pretty loud. Uh, he was able to hear them afterward. Is this more sort of being distracted by what else is going on in his body? Uh, and his brain at that point, the, the, these freezing episodes, is it buying time in some way to to allow him to uh, not be freezing as much, you know? So there, there's different possibilities here. It could just be hearing loss, um, which, which again is not that unusual, but it does seem like there's something more going on here. And, and, and Manu, um, with uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, having her difficulties, not to mention the discussions about the ages of both President Biden and Donald Trump, this is certain to renew conversations about our aging political class. Yeah, and McConnell's future itself. I mean, he just won re-election in 2020. The question is, will he run for re-election in 2026? He is the longest-serving Republican leader, uh, leader of any party in the Senate history. The question is, will he continue to serve beyond this Congress? He says that he will serve for the next year, but what about the year after that? And if he steps aside then, that will open up a whole effort to try to replace him, a campaign, an effort uh, that is already perhaps underway, according to some Republicans who are watching some of these potential successors very closely. So we'll see how that takes place. But a lot of questions about his future and after this moment, Jake. Yeah, and our, our thoughts are with him and his uh, family. Manu Raja, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks to both of you. Uh, Idalia was the strongest hurricane in 125 years to make landfall in Florida's Big Bend area. That's the part of Florida where the panhandle meets the west of the state's uh, peninsula. Uh, even as Adalia has been moving over land, it has held much of its Category 1 strength. We're going to have an update on the storm's track. When the 5 o'clock update comes in, that's in just minutes. Stay with us. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, we just got a brand new update on Idalia. No longer a hurricane, now a tropical storm after lashing Florida as a devastating Category 3 hurricane earlier today. Landfall this morning was in Keaton Beach, which is right along the so-called Big Bend of Florida. The Big Bend is where the Panhandle meets Florida's west coast, the west coast of the peninsula. The National Hurricane Center's very first projection back on Saturday came within just 10 miles of that, about 20 miles north. A woman in the town of Perry, Florida, captured a tree falling right on her home as Idalia moved through. Take a look. Oh my gosh. No! Oh. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. 
That woman told CNN, thankfully, she and her family are okay. The tree damaged part of her roof. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis surveyed parts of that small town of Perry, Florida, not long ago. DeSantis himself uh, has a bit of storm damage um, because Idalia knocked over a large old tree at the Florida governor's mansion in Tallahassee. Governor's wife, Casey DeSantis, posted this picture on social media. CNN is covering this from Florida to Georgia, where the storm is right now. Let's start with meteorologist Chad Myers live in the CNN Weather Center with the latest update. And Chad, this storm seems to be moving pretty quickly. It is. It is. And that's the good news. And that may reduce the amount of flooding because when storms stall, that's when the heavy rainfall comes in and it lasts for a long time. As long as this keeps on moving, we are in good shape. I just saw a live shot there from Tallahassee and it was sunny already. And the days after a hurricane, it can get very, very hot in that sun. But now 70 miles per hour, no more number for the storm itself. No Nothing to worry about at this point in time other than some rain and a little bit of wind and the potential for a landfalling tornado or so. The wind issue, I mean, really, we're not going to see gusts of 100 miles per hour. That is done. It's been over land long enough. There is the threat, though, of the tornado still, and we have two tornado warnings in effect. They're not large tornadoes, and they may not even be on the ground, but you mean we have a way of getting these warnings to your phone. Make sure you know how to do that, even though they're small and really not small if they're near your house, are they? 500,000 without power. Now the power outages stretching up into parts of South Carolina. So yes, you mentioned how quickly it's moving, spreading the rainfall out a little bit, but still the potential in the Piedmont here of four to six inches of rainfall. And that's enough to cause some of those to more topographic areas to fall off and into creeks and streams and get into some river flooding there possible later on today, Jake. And Chad, the National Hurricane Center's first forecast on Saturday Mm. was pretty close. How unusual is that? It is very unusual. Five days away to be 10 miles away. I mean, come on. This looks like the spaghetti plot. There are all little plots in here and they're all moving up toward the north. But those are all of the subsequent forecasts as well. Every single one within 55 miles of the actual landfall and the one that you talked about, the very first one, 120 hours before this storm hit, was 10 miles from where it actually made landfall. Spectacular. That's all you got. I mean, it was a Category 1 on this forecast, not a Category 3 or 4. But we always know that we know where it's going. But sometimes when you get rapid intensification, you don't know how strong it is or how strong it will be. But that spectacular. Nothing, no, no other word than that. Chad Myers in the CNN Weather Center. Thanks so much. Uh, Savannah, Georgia is the l- next large city in Tropical Storm Adalia's path and CNN's Ryan Young is there in Savannah. And Ryan, the storm surge is a real concern where you are. Yeah, absolutely. And people are listening to all those weather reports to see what actually happens next. You can see the Savannah River behind us. It was a lot higher yesterday. They're worrying about it cresting to the point where some of the businesses here have put up these water dams to kind of stop the water from coming this direction. But look, this is one of the the America's most traveled cities. People come here for tourism all the time. And look, we see this family here from New York. You guys just got in from New York. Your name is Cheryl. Tell us what brought you to Savannah, first of all. So we flew into Savannah and then we traveled to Hilton Head to have fun with the kids by the sand and the ocean. But then we came here because of the hurricane. So we felt safer in Savannah. Were you concerned at all when you saw the storm sort of turning this direction? 
We were concerned. That's why we left Hilton Head Island. So we came back here to Savannah. And the kids have been enjoying the weather. They're having fun in the rain. So it's been great. And we feel safe. Okay. And I know the hotels put a lot of preparation into this. What are you worried about in the next few hours? Because the rain's going to pick up. The wind's going to pick up. Have you been through a hurricane before? We haven't since we live in Manhattan. But okay. we're told that they have hurricane-proof windows. They've made a lot of preparations. And they have a generator. So we feel safe. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Hopefully you and your family are safe today. Thank you. you guys wave because I know you want to be on camera so go ahead and wave look you know that's part of this jake you know people come from all over the country all over the world to come here to savannah we'll walk this direction just a little bit and one of the reasons why i want to show this they are taking extra precautions here the port has been shut down and as i mentioned in the last hour the large bridges throughout this area have also been closed off because they're worried about the wind the other thing that we've been monitoring is the power outages throughout the area georgia power has been staying on top of that you can go on an app and look at it digitally and see how it's spiking up and down and the winds in the area at hunter army airfield which is nearby they've been gusting around 45 miles per hour so not the heavy wind gust that we've seen other places if you didn't know that this was a normal day around here you would not know a hurricane is coming but the streets are empty because this coastal community is not taking any chances as we've been driving around just a little bit we've noticed the streets have been clear emergency operations are standing by just in case anything else happens but right now, Jake, we're told it's the next two hours where we should see the heavy rain and wind coming into this area. Maybe it skips us. Maybe it breaks up. But at the same time, they believe they're ready. Jake. All right. CNN's Ryan Young in Savannah. Thanks so much. Let's bring in the former FEMA administrator, Craig Fugate. Uh, administrator Fugate, you also previously led Florida's Division of Emergency Management and you live in Florida. Obviously, it's still early. Um, do you foresee this being an easier recovery than Hurricane Ian, uh, Ian based on the facts as of right now, 5.06 p.m. Eastern, uh, for Fl- Floridians? Yeah, this is, again, very rural, so we're not dealing with this population. Um, the storm surge and the impacts, again, these were small communities that may be catastrophic, but we're not talking thousands of homes. Uh, towns like Perry got hammered, and we're seeing that wind damage, but it decreased across the state. I think the real thing on this response is going to be those coastal areas that got tremendous storm surge damage. Those first cities that got the hurricane force winds and then power restoration is going to drive a lot of this recovery. You spoke to CNN earlier about the trickiness of responding to uh, these small, rural, spread out communities uh, southeast of Tallahassee, where, which took the brunt of, of this hurricane. How are first responders getting to that area? We've already heard some people, some officials from the area talk about how many downed trees are there and how they have to travel with, uh, with chainsaws. Yeah, the Florida Department of Transportation uh, has a really simple plan. It's called cut and toss. Uh, they're not trying to clear debris. They're just opening up the roads so the responders can come in. And, and this area, again, we got I-10 across the north. We got I-75 to the west of a lot of this area or to the east of the area. And then we have US 1927. These are all very good highways once you get them cleared to move up and down and get in these areas. But there's just a lot of rural community here to get out and check on people. So that's going to take some time. But they were already in the areas that were getting impacted. Seeing Hatchie's been searched and they're going to continue looking for people. Uh, But it's really, I now think it's turning from the initial search and rescue to the assessments and getting power back on and looking at the damages and what may be needed for people to recover. Current FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell also said today the agency is in long-term recovery mode for the Maui wildfires. How does FEMA handle short-term and long-term disasters 
overlapping like this? Well, they deal with multiple disasters. I, you know, we don't get the luxury of having one disaster at a time. So this is what FEMA does. You'll have disasters in various states in that initial response, then going into the short-term immediate needs recovery, and then looking at the longer-term rebuilding. So, you know, President uh, Biden had already appointed uh, one of the FEMA leadership, uh, Bob Fenton, to handle the long-term recovery. Uh, and that allows really for headquarters now to focus on the next crisis, in this case, this hurricane. And that's how they keep doing it. They put in the staff on the disasters to manage those until they get those stabilized. Uh, and they rotate staff in the new disaster. I heard an interview uh, with somebody on uh, NPR today in which they talked about Maui, if I could just go back to that disaster for one second. And a woman was talking about, a government official in Maui was talking about how people in Maui still have to pay their mortgage on homes that were burned down to the ground, homes that no longer exist. Uh, And also they no longer have jobs because of everything that happened in Maui. That's the kind of after effect, long-term problem that a lot of people have that I think people, most of us who have not experienced anything like this don't even understand. Yeah, we'll see this. We saw this in Ian. We've seen this in a lot of uh, floods and hurricanes where people didn't have enough insurance or didn't have insurance. Their homes got destroyed. Uh, They still have to pay their mortgage. They have to find a place to live and they may not have a job. A lot of the federal that short term, like disaster unemployment assistance and temporary housing, the things that you have to also look long term, the economic recovery. And, And this is a huge issue. We're challenged in Maui, but we're seeing it in other places rebuilding and and keeping areas from being gentrified to where the people that live there can no longer afford to go back. Yeah, Craig Craig Fugate's uh, 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 computer uh, froze up there. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. I want to bring in the deputy director of the National Hurricane Center right now, uh, Jamie Rome. Uh, Jamie, thanks for joining us. We just got this new forecast from the National Hurricane Center uh, showing uh, that it's now a tropical storm. Uh, not as dangerous, not as bad as uh, Category 1 hurricane. Uh, What's your assessment of the danger for people in Georgia at this hour? Yeah, so with this change, uh, we're transitioning from, um, you know, coastal storm surge and and powerful wind threats to uh, heavy rain and flooding threat inland. And you can see it sort of unfolding behind me here on the radar with these very heavy rains that have been working their way through southern Georgia through the last several hours. And now they're setting up over uh, eastern South Carolina and southeastern North Carolina. Yesterday, you warned that the island of Cedar Key could be completely cut off from the rest of Florida. We did end up seeing a monster storm surge there. In your expert experience, how long does it take a community to recover from a storm surge such as the one we saw there? You know, it's going to depend on uh, several factors, uh, the degree of the of the damage um, and and how quickly we can get search and rescue and and state and federal teams into that community to help them bounce back and recover. Um, You know, generally speaking, that magnitude of a storm surge, if you if you look at sort of Fort Myers Beach, uh, it can take uh, weeks to months to to get back on your feet after something that magnitude. And these storm surges, we need to underline that they could be pretty toxic to people, right? I mean, it's not just, oh, it's ocean water filling the streets. You have sewage, farm runoff, hazardous waste uh, in that water. I remember uh, touring 
New Orleans after the, the levees failed after Hurricane Katrina, and that water was nothing that you would ever want to take step, step foot in. Yeah, I mean, this is a really great point and speaks to uh, why it's so difficult to communicate uh, why storm surge is so impactful and why we have to evacuate for it. it. It's not just the water and the immediate push. It's the aftermath that comes with it that creates an unsafe environment within the community for days and sometimes weeks afterwards. Um, you know, that water is, is really dirty and a lot of people will go wading through it. And if they cut themselves, um, you're talking about creates a, a cascading uh, series of problems for them, and they may not be able to get emergency services or help right away in that instance. Deputy Director uh, Jamie Rome, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The head of FEMA, Deanne Criswell, said today that she plans to travel to Florida at some point this evening. We're going to go uh, down to the coast and get a closer look at some of the damage crews are already assessing next. And we're back with our national lead, Tropical Storm Idalia, currently battering South Georgia. Before it got that far, take a look at what it did to this beach house in Keaton Beach, Florida. This is where the eye of Idalia came on shore just before 8 o'clock this morning, East Coast time. The roof of the house completely ripped off, exposing the upstairs bedroom and other rooms as though you're looking at a blueprint almost. Let's bring back meteorologist Chad Myers. Chad, between the flooding and the tornado risks, can you walk mm-hmm. us through the, the, the biggest worries tonight? Yeah, both of those. And as it gets to sunset and dark, all of a sudden people are still driving around not realizing that there is flash flooding still out there. This thing still has a tremendous amount of tropical moisture. It doesn't have tropical wind characteristics with it anymore and i know that says 70 i haven't been able to find a gust over about 55 now for a couple of hours but hey you know what we are still going to see the potential for tornadoes as these storms come on shore there is that potential still today all the storms coming on shore could be rotating so you need to keep your radio your phone on make sure you know what's going on locally all right, Chad, thanks so much. Let's go live to Gulfport, Florida now, where we find CNN correspondent Carlos Suarez. Uh, Carlos, the water where you are appears to be uh, receding. Tell us what you're seeing on the ground there. Yeah, Jake, so uh, we are in Gulfport, as you said. That is in Pinellas County, where uh, most of the city out here really has uh, dried out. Uh, This part, uh, just a few hours ago, you could not drive up and down this street because most of it was covered. A few minutes ago, we spoke with the mayor uh, on your show, Jake, and he was telling us that this part of town was under about three feet of water. Uh, I just drove a little bit further uh, that way for a couple of minutes to see if there was any more flooding on that side of town. It's all gone as well. That is good news considering where things were just a few hours ago here in Pinellas County. Just a few minutes ago, the mayor of Tampa over in Hillsborough County, that's about a half hour drive from where we are, she had a news conference uh, and said that really they didn't have much uh, of any injuries uh, with respect to this storm in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, We also know that the mandatory evacuation order in Hillsborough County has been lifted. It was lifted around uh, 5 o'clock, actually, so about 20 minutes ago. uh, Folks uh, were allowed to return to their homes if they decided to go inland or if they decided to stay in one of the hurricane shelters. Uh, The evacuation order for this part of Pinellas County, I believe, is still very much in effect, though. We have seen a number of folks return uh, to this part of town. And in fact, uh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, this restaurant here put out some tables. They finished up uh, some of their cleanup uh, work out here. A couple of businesses further up the street appear to also uh, 
get things in order, hopefully to reopen uh, either later today, if not at some point tomorrow. Jake? All right, Carlos Suarez, thanks so much. We're going to have more from Adalia's Stormpath coming up. But first, the health concerns for Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, after he appeared to freeze again at a news conference earlier today. That's next. We're tracking what used to be Hurricane Adalia, now is Tropical Storm Adalia, as she heads right towards Savannah, Georgia, after battering parts of Florida. We expect to hear from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in just a few minutes. We will bring that to you live. Let's go to Crystal River, Florida, where CNN's Gloria Pasmino is standing by. Gloria, how is the storm surge impacting the area where you are? Well, Jake, that's exactly what we're keeping our eye on right now, because right over that way is where the Gulf of Mexico and the river meets. And the high tide is expected to be coming in in the next few hours. And all this water that you're seeing right here could be moving inland towards people's properties, which are directly in front of us. So there's a lot of water here about up to my knees. And I just want to give you a sense of the landscape here. This is a main thoroughfare. And we've been watching as emergency vehicles and some other cars try to get across. I watched as there were a couple of airboats that were making their way over trying to get to people who might need help. So things here in Crystal River, you know, the worst of the storm is over, but you can tell that the cleanup is barely just uh, getting started. I want to introduce you, Jake, to a local resident. Her name is Bernice. She told me just a few minutes ago she's lived here her entire life. And Bernice, just tell me, what have you been seeing? I saw you walking over in that direction just a little while ago. What did it look like? It wasn't good at all. I've never seen it like this ever, and I'm 64 years old, and it's sad to see it like this because as I was walking further down um, southeast of the Highway 44 area, the water began to get deeper, and it was like pushing me back, and that's when I realized it was time to turn around. Like I said, it's sad because I've been here all my life, pretty much teared up right now because... It's just sad. Yeah. The water has, we've had floods, but never has ever gotten to this point where it's all the way down to uh, Northeast Fifth and Martin Luther King. It's it's never gotten this far. I hear you, Bernice. I'm so sorry. I hope you and your family are okay. I know you told me you had to get out of your house through the window last night. So, Jake, as you see here, you know, Florida's uh, uh, worst of the storm is over, but people are here still grappling with the consequences of this historic storm. A lot of damage, a lot of devastation, and potentially more water that could be moving inland as that high tide rolls in. Jake? Yeah, it can be uh, as dangerous, if not more so, uh, in the immediate aftermath mm-hmm. of the storm. Gloria Pasmino in Crystal River, uh, Florida. Thanks so much. Let's turn to our politics lead now because Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, a Republican of, of Kentucky, he's 81 years old. He had another episode today um, where he seemed to freeze. He seemed unresponsive during a news conference. Uh, I want to play uh, some of that moment. Take a look. What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh, that's right. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yes. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator. Benny. Yep. Go ahead outside, sir. Come with us. Okay. Somebody else have a question? Please speak up. 
Um, what efforts is Daniel Cameron going to have to make on the campaign trails when Kentuckians over in November? Senator Daniel Cameron, uh, do you have a comment on Daniel Cameron? Well, I think the government's race is going to be very close. Uh, far and away the best candidate we could have nominated. And uh, our state has become increasingly Republican. In fact, the governor's the only Democrat left in Frankfurt. So I'm optimistic that Daniel will be our next governor of Kentucky. This incident is not dissimilar from what we saw at the Capitol just over a month ago. Um, McConnell was hospitalized in March after suffering a concussion. Uh, let's talk about this with Dana Bash and David Chalian. So this is going to renew a conversation not just about Senator McConnell and his ability to do his job at 81 with whatever he is dealing with health-wise, but also President Biden, Donald Trump, Dianne Feinstein, who in some ways I... I can't believe is still in office. Um, What do you make of it all? Yeah, I mean, the conversation is already happening. Uh, It already was happening about sort of the broader uh, point about the aging uh, politicians at the heads of our government. But specifically with uh, Senator McConnell, it was very noteworthy there. It was was very difficult to watch, we should say, and our viewers obviously saw that, that he uh, clearly didn't want to leave. When this happened in the summer, when he was on Capitol Hill, they moved him away. It lasted a bit longer. Here, he didn't want to leave because he, he, it almost felt like he knew what was happening and he wanted to stay and answer the question. And then when the question was asked about a political candidate for governor, he knew exactly what it was, knew exactly who the reporter was asking about and wanted to answer the question. What we don't know is why this is happening. All we know is that his office is saying that he was lightheaded, just like they did over the summer, uh, and that he's seeking help for, uh, from a physician before he does his next event. And then he's spoken with members of his leadership. Team. Right. But most of us have been lightheaded at one point or another and not had that experience. And I have to no say, question. and I don't mean this in a crass way, but if, if one of my parents had a moment like that, and they're 81 and 83, and they have not, but if one of my, moments had a, had a, one of my parents had a moment like that, I might have a conversation about taking away the car keys. I mean, that is concerning. It is concerning. There's no doubt about that. And of course, your parents are not in a position of authority in the government, which to me requires a different level of transparency here. And so I think while um, clearly we don't know what is going on, uh, and I, there's no doubt he wanted to stay there, mm-hmm. but the recovery, which he did, was able to talk about the Kentucky governor's race, able to talk about Daniel Cameron. I think you guys are overstating how, how, how much you could hear him. How the- you no, know, no, no. It's a different Mitch McConnell, Jake. There's no doubt about it. I'm yeah. just saying from being frozen and not speaking at all, sure. he was able to process the next question and actually exactly. answer about the on topic, the Daniel Cameron and the Kentucky governor's race. But he sounded very different than he's had There's the no doubt about that. I, my point is... That sh- the fact that he was able to do that does not in any way, I think, uh, excuse his office, himself, the team, from providing Americans with as much information as possible as to what is going on, providing Kentuckians with as much information as possible. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is the second time that this happened that we know about. Publicly. Publicly, in front of a camera, uh, is troubling. Look, he is somebody who is uh, not up for re-election for not this term, but the following term 
for his Senate seat, the question in the short term is going to be among his fellow Republicans uh, whether or not he should remain as leader. Um, If they argue that 90 percent of the time that isn't happening and he can still do his job, they might rally around him. Uh, For somebody who is a a stubborn man, uh, somebody of a different generation, that's got to be incredibly tough because it's it's sad, but it's also, no doubt, knowing him, embarrassing. Yeah, I think there are two things that have changed, that I, if I could just observe, from somebody who's been covering Capitol Hill and this town for, for decades. And one of them is reporters are less polite about this, mm-hmm. which I think is a good thing, more honest about it, uh, in terms of Senator Feinstein especially. These are just happening in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that's really new. Uh, Senator Cochran... Uh, rest in peace. There was a long period where he was clearly not all there and was an incumbent senator. And people kind of tiptoed around it. Same thing with Strom Thurmond. Yes, I was just going to say that Strom Thurmond, Robert C. Byrd, these are people who did not want to leave office. And they didn't until they were way past the ability, their ability to do their jobs. I remember, and I'm sure you do too, Strom Thurmond being wheeled around in the halls of the Senate, and his top staffers were effectively doing the job right. this, of, this of chief senator. Of staff was called chief the of staff. 101st senator. Yes. Yeah. Although yes. he was not elected by anybody, that no, chief of staff. Exactly. But I would just note, the American people, Associated Press uh, and NRC did a poll yeah. uh, this week. We saw, we talked about the news item of a, uh, three quarters of Americans in the poll concerned about Joe Biden's age, a slim majority not of Americans. Not just concerned, didn't think, didn't think he, he could do the job, do the job second, no doubt. including majority of Democrats. No doubt, we 69% of Democrats. We Jean-Pierre about that yesterday. Yeah, and, and 51% of Americans uh, say the same about Donald Trump. What is interesting is two-thirds of Americans say in that same poll that there should be an age cutoff to when a Supreme Court justice can serve, when a president can serve, when a member of Congress can serve. Uh, Americans overwhelmingly are in favor having an age limit. Uh, You know, the Constitution has a minimum age requirement, but uh, Americans are in favor of a maximum age requirement. Well, these rules were created when people lived to be like 60. Right, exactly. Right. I mean, if if at, at, at most. Yeah, there is a reason why you are seeing some of the candidates, particularly 2024 candidates, in the younger generation lean into the generational argument more and more and more. uh, And it is because they see this. It's not just because of Joe Biden. It's also because of what they see on the GOP side. And and it's also because of Donald Trump, to be honest. All right, Dana Bash and David Chalian. Difficult, difficult conversations. Tough to watch. Coming up, more legal problems for Rudy Giuliani, this time a defamation lawsuit. Why a federal judge is ordering him to forfeit his case next. And we're going to continue to follow Tropical Storm Idalia. You can help victims already impacted. If you want, head to CNN.com slash impact, CNN.com slash impact for options to donate. Or you can also text 707070. We'll be right back. Even on Florida's east coast, Idalia's storm surge pushed powerful waves up on shore, flooding oceanside roads and sidewalks. Adalia's wind swept through the Jacksonville, Florida region after making landfall on the opposite side of the peninsula as a Category 3 storm near Keaton Beach. Adalia is now a tropical storm making its way through southeastern Georgia. Between Georgia and Florida, more than 460,000 customers are currently without power. Please stay with CNN as we continue to track the storm's course. Until then, though, in our Law and Justice lead, a loss that may prove financially devastating 
for Rudy Giuliani. A federal judge just ruled that Giuliani must forfeit the defamation lawsuit filed against him by a pair of Georgia election workers he publicly named while making false claims about ballot tampering after the 2020 election. Let's bring in Sarah Murray. Sarah, why did the judge determine that Giuliani just forfeits this case? Well, right. That's another way of saying, you know, he loses in this situation. But it's because he was just not handing over the documents that he was required to hand over as part of discovery in this case. And so the judge said, essentially, if you can't comply with discovery, there's no way for Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, again, the election workers that that Rudy Giuliani has talked about and, and falsely claimed of ballot tampering, there's no way that they can appropriately bring their defamation case against you. So essentially, you forfeit you lose. And then this moves on to figuring out what the damages are. And, and, you know, obviously this is a victory as far as Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss are concerned. They said he turned their lives into a living nightmare, Jake. When this case goes to trial, Giuliani could be ordered to pay pay, uh, thousands, if if not millions of dollars. Meanwhile, he's already claiming to be struggling to pay other massive legal bills. And Donald Trump is apparently not giving him much help there. Yeah, I mean, we don't have a sense of what the damages are going to be in this case. There's going to be a trial either later on this year or early next year that will determine the damages that Giuliani has to pay. But his lawyer has previously said that he's having financial problems. He complained that part of the reason that they couldn't comply with discovery was some of the financial obligations, even though Trump has helped him on some of the records keeping uh, uh, components of this. But it's very clear that Rudy Giuliani is having a cash flow problem. It was interesting. His political advisor, Ted Goodman said that Giuliani, of course, disagrees with this decision and wants it reversed. But again, it's hard to see how you can go back and relitigate these things over and over again if your well of cash is running dry, Jake. Turning to the Georgia indictment, uh, today two Trump co-defendants who requested speedy trials asked a judge to formally separate their cases from the sprawling overall indictment, which includes 18 people plus Donald Trump. What might that mean for Fonnie Willis's case, the district attorney there, if those two do have their cases separated? Well, look, she made it clear that she wanted to try all of these 19 defendants together as part of this sprawling racketeering case. And I think this gives you an indication of how difficult that's going to be. Both Ken Chesbrough and Sidney Powell have said they want speedy trials. They're now trying to sever their case from the rest of them. Donald Trump's attorneys have already said he also wants to sever his case. So trying to get everyone to actually go to trial at the same time seems like it could be an uphill battle for the district attorney. So it may mean she's trying groups of people separately. And we're still waiting to see, frankly, which court this ends up going to trial. And obviously, Mark Meadows and others have tried to move this case to federal court. And it's still an open question if they succeed, if other defendants, if the whole case could end up going with them. So there's a lot of herding cats at this point, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Adalia was the third hurricane to hit Florida in just the last 12 months, coming up the science of these storms. What's making so many of them so powerful? And we're back with our coverage of Idalia, formerly a hurricane, now a tropical storm. This was a scene in Perry, Florida earlier, near where Idalia made landfall uh, this morning, toppling trees, creating qu- quite a lot of damage along the way. CNN's John Berman is in Perry, Florida for us. John, what else are you seeing? Yeah, I'm seeing things like this behind me, Jake. You can see I'm at Rody's truck stop in Perry, right in that same town you were showing that tree damage from. And you can see this awning over the diesel gas pumps just blew over. 
it tore up the brick. It twisted the metal that was holding it in place, and now it is just completely leaning on its side. Now, Perry was the where the storm passed directly over. It made landfall about 18 miles in that direction right there. Keaton Beach is a Category 3 storm, winds of 115 miles an hour, and then passed directly overhead here with winds almost that powerful. Maybe it was down to 105 at that point. When we were driving here, Jake, what we saw is that Adalia was a powerful storm, but a relatively small storm and fast moving. Therefore, the damage from it almost happened in one distinct stripe. So you didn't see that much damage as you, as you were driving to Tallahassee, but when you started seeing it, it was bad. We saw those trees that you get used to in hurricanes, the exploded trees. We saw telephone poles leaning into the roads, wires strewn about everywhere. We actually had some problems getting through here because of the wires that were on the roadway. We saw Governor DeSantis, his motorcade, actually drive by us from Tallahassee to Perry. So this was, I think, the hardest hit area in the region in terms of the wind. This is where the wind damage was. Obviously, about 18 miles in that direction on the coast is where they had issues with the storm surge, that powerful storm surge. Not as many people live there, luckily. Here, Perry's a town of about 7,000, and they're having a hard time digging through all the fallen tree branches right now, Jake. All right, John Berman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Tropical Storm Adalia is just one of multiple destructive weather events as Americans ensure, endure a summer of intense uh, relentless uh, natural disasters. Let's discuss with Dr. Kareen Matches, geography professor at the University of Florida, as well as our meteorologist, Chad Myers. Dr. Matches, I'll start with you. For, for years, we've heard the climate change is a growing threat. This year, we have seen all sorts of real extremes across the United States, from Hawaii uh, to Georgia. Is the average American, do you think, now starting to understand that climate change is here and having a disastrous effect? Well, it's hard to say what the average American might think, but um, scientists all agree that there has been um, a change um, over the long term in the, the conditions that we're facing, um, and that does come with extremes in our weather conditions. And Chad, uh, talk about how climate change played a role in intensifying Hurricane Adalia, what, what impact uh, could it have had? You know, we've been talking about the water temperature around the Keys now for what seems like months and how there's going to be this coral event, likely bleaching event. The water has been in record warmth territory. Now, Adalia would likely have happened anyway. But you cannot tell, because of where it started, what would have happened had the water not been five or six degrees warmer than it should have been. We don't have hurricanes in the winter because the water's not warm enough. It only starts in June. Well, now it's starting in May. And it's supposed to be over in November, but sometimes we get them in December. It's the warmth of the water that caused Adalia to be significantly stronger than it likely would have been had the water temperature been normal. And Dr. Matches, climate change obviously is fueling more dangerous storms. Uh, as it relates to hurricane, hurricanes, let, let's flash forward 10 years. What, what, what might it look like for Americans who live along the coastlines, such as the west coast of Florida, um, other impacted areas? Um, are there difficult questions to be asked about whether people should rebuild in some of these areas? 
Well, those are difficult questions, and you know they're already being asked. As we know that there is sea level rise happening, and um, quote normal tides now are higher than they used to be. So there's a lot more flooding that's happening, even when there isn't a storm available. Um, and so when you have a, a devastating uh, storm, and even winter systems can cause um, a lot of beach erosion and building damage along the shore. Um, so not just uh, tropical systems, but also winter systems. Um, there's got to be a lot of uh, mitigation or adaptation decisions that need to be made. Chad, this summer we've seen thousands of heat records broken. O- mm-hmm. Ocean temperatures at, at hot tub levels, extraordinary sure. wildfires, California, Hawaii, Earth's hottest month on record. What are the practical impacts that this is having and will continue to have on people's day-to-day lives? You know, the people that live in the urban wildlife interface, um, really, right when you back up a home into a forest, your threat of a forest fire now, of a wildfire, has grown significantly. We are growing things in the wet season, and sometimes they're wetter, and we are drying out the forests and the wildland when it is dry. And it is a bigger swing from wetter to dry. Typically, we used to see this when it was El Nino, La Nina. You get a big El Nino event, it starts to rain in California, grows things, grass, all the chaparral. And then it dies and then it burns. But now there isn't a wildfire season. It's just the wildfire year. Dr. Matches, there remains not just political polarization on this issue, but continued misinformation about the causes of climate change. Uh, Polls show Republican voters far less likely to believe human actions are the root cause. A lot of this can be traced back to a misinformation campaign funded by the oil companies decades ago. How do you help people understand the science behind this? Uh, And do storms such as this, do they change minds? Well, yeah, as a scientist, um, I work with the data. And so um, we have really good uh, collection of data these days and um, models that can show us how the different conditions line up. And, um, and so part of my job as a university professor is to you know, educate the, the generations that are coming through the university and teach them science. Um, and then they go and they make their own informed decisions based on that. Do you encounter skeptics, students that don't believe it? And if so, what, what do you do? Well, we stick to the facts. Um, you know, we have testable hypotheses and um, you know, we, we verify our data sources. We used methods that are, are scientifically proven. Um, and so, yes, yeah, sometimes we do have a debate about it. Um, but at the end of the day, we let the data speak for themselves. Dr. Uh, Corrine Matches and Chad Myers, thanks to both of you for that conversation. Officials in Pasco County, Florida, just north of Tampa, say Adalia has damaged upwards of 6,000 homes. Nearly a half million customers in Florida and, Georgia, Florida and Georgia currently do not have power. Any moment now, we expect an update from the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. We'll bring you that live next in the Situation Room. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 